Hi, church. It is a really, really good to be with you all today. Uh, whether you're joining us live on one of our five campuses across the East Bay or online, or you'll be reading this uh, from prison as a part of our CF Inside family, welcome. We are in week two of our summer series, The Making of a Leader. And uh, today we're gonna pick up right where we left off last weekend in the story of Esther. Um, but before we dive into that, I actually wanna take a moment to just uh, express my gratitude to all of you. Um, seven weekends ago, I, we were actually in the middle of our series, You Asked For It. And I was preparing to teach that weekend on the question, why do some prayers get answered and others don't? And uh, it was about five hours before I was gonna come to our Livermore campus and teach at our Saturday night service um, when I received a text from my mom saying that my brother John had been in a car accident and uh, she was heading to the hospital with my sister-in-law, Courtney. Uh, and in that moment, I began praying immediately. Uh, and it was less than a half an hour later that I received a phone call from my mom saying that um, John had passed away at the age of 36, leaving behind a wife and two young boys and a third son on the way due in October. And um, although we still don't have the official autopsy results yet, we believe John suffered from an aneurysm or some type of cardiac arrest um, as a result of a heart disease that we now know he had and uh, that he just passed away immediately while driving home um, from playing a soccer game with his friends. And uh, thankfully, there was no one else in the car with him, and he just kind of veered off the road, and no other cars were involved in the accident. Uh, so obviously, I was not able to give that sermon, and I instead began preparing to um, fly back to St. Louis to be with my family. And... Now that I look back on it, I know that um, the person God was having me prepare that message for was myself. And one of the things, one of the ideas that I had prepared for that message was the idea of, hey, in the midst of our unanswered prayers, instead of simply asking why questions, Right, God, why, why did this happen? Why did you allow it? Why didn't you intervene? To also begin to ask what questions. God, what, what are you doing in and through this situation? God, what, what can you teach me? What can you show me? God, what life transformation is happening as a result of this tragedy? And uh, the reality for me is I still don't have any of my why questions answered as to why um, my brother suddenly passed away. But over the last seven weeks, as I've been asking what questions as well, one of the things that God has shown me is just how incredible my Cornerstone family is. I've been completely blown away by all of the support and prayers that I and my whole family have received from all of you guys. The emails, the texts, the Facebook messages, the cards that have been sent, the tears that have been shed on our behalf, the prayers that have been prayed. 
the fact that so many of you guys gave to the GoFundMe account in order to help financially support my sister-in-law and my nephews who you've never met before. Like all of that means more to me than you'll ever know. And so I couldn't get up here today and just not take a moment to say thank you. Like thank you for being my family. Thank you for caring for me so well when I needed it most. Anyone who's ever experienced the loss of a close loved one knows that this is really just like the beginning of the grieving process. Um, but one thing that I know without a doubt is that so many of you have played such a significant role already in my healing journey. And uh, the fact that my family could experience um, love and support from my Cornerstone family in such tangible ways while being halfway across the country, like, that made me really, really, really proud to be a part of this church. So thank you. Now I'm gonna try to compose myself <laughs> and preach a sermon. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> we can do this, guys, we can do this. <laughs> um, it actually was interesting for me, a cool thing for me, as the past few weeks as I've been preparing for this particular sermon uh, in this particular series on leadership. Because as a result of the last few months for me, I've actually realized that you guys have exhibited and shown me uh, a really important leadership principle. And it's actually one that I think is oftentimes overlooked. Like it's not talked about much. You could read through the most popular leadership books and they, there probably won't be a chapter on this. Yet I would venture to say that it is one of, if not the most important leadership principle that there is. And so that's what I wanna talk about today. We actually find this leadership principle in Esther chapters three and four where we're gonna be studying today. So grab a Bible. You can turn with me there. Uh, last week, Pastor Billy opened up this teaching series uh, by introducing us um, to this Old Testament book, Esther, and, and three of the four main characters that we find in this book. Uh, the first main character is Esther, a young Jewish girl who lived in Susa around uh, 480 BC, um, and Susa's now modern-day Iran, and uh, she was a part of the Persian Empire. Um, you see, this was at a time in the, in the Jewish people's history where the country of Israel did not exist, and they instead are under the reign of King Xerxes, who is the second main character in our story. Uh, King Xerxes, he's a guy who is very arrogant and shallow, and he prides himself on his vast wealth and his power over others. Uh, he is someone who's easily swayed by ego and pleasure and the poor advice of those around him. And as we learned last week, while uh, he's in the middle of a six-month-long drunken party that he throws for himself, King Xerxes becomes frustrated with his wife, Queen Vashti, because she dared defy him in front of his buddies. And so he makes the decision to remove her from position of queen and instead conduct an empire-wide beauty contest of sorts in order to find her replacement. And this is where Esther comes into to the picture. Um, she finds favor with the king, and she wins this contest and is made the next queen of Persia. 
But none of this happened without a considerable amount of help and guidance and coaching from our third main character uh, in the story, and that's Mordecai. Mordecai is actually Esther's older cousin, um, but Esther, who uh, was orphaned as a young girl, was raised by Mordecai, and so Esther's more like a daughter to him. And one thing we learn in chapter two about Mordecai is that he's described as someone who sat at the king's gate. And the king's gate is where all the king's officials and leaders would have gathered. So that sentence tells us that Mordecai had some sort of office or position of influence um, among the king's officials. And um, at the end of chapter two, we actually learn that Mordecai, he became aware of a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And so he lets Esther know, she's the queen, and the queen then informs the king, and as a result of Mordecai's intervention, the king's life is saved. And it's kind of like a, a, a little brief story detail that the writer of Esther throws in at the end of chapter two, but it's actually an important detail for us to remember because it's gonna come up in a very um, important way in a future week as we get further into Esther's story. And so keep that in the back of your mind. And all this leads us to chapter three, where we meet our fourth and final main character. We've got Esther, King Xerxes, Mordecai, and now Haman. Haman is actually King Xerxes' top official. And he becomes mortally offended because Mordecai chooses, refuses really, to not bow down and honor Haman. You see, Haman, he's not simply like silly and foolish like King Xerxes. No, his ego, his pride actually creates a great evil within him. He is someone who is consumed by, by power and prestige and the praise of others. And so the fact that Mordecai refuses to bow down and honor him, it completely enrages Haman. And Haman then begins conniving this master plan to convince King Xerxes to give him permission to kill not just Mordecai, but every single Jewish person in the entire Persian kingdom. Look at Esther chapter three, verse eight. It says, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. And then in typical fashion, King Xerxes, he doesn't even take the effort to figure out who this group of people is that Haman wants to slaughter. He just simply takes off his signet ring, hands it over to Haman, and allows him to send out an edict on the king's behalf, naming a future date when every man, woman, and child from Israel would be annihilated. And in chapter three, uh, it closes with this edict being sent out. And verse 15 tells us that the city of Susa, they, they hear about this edict and the whole city is just bewildered. I mean, the people are, are reeling over the news of this coming bloodbath of genocide. Yet verse 15 also tells us that Haman and the king, their response is to sit down and drink and celebrate this decision that they've made. You see this complete lack of empathy 
on the king and Haman's behalf, it's completely contrasted by Mordecai's response to the news. Look at chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Okay, sackcloth here, uh, it, it refers to a coarse material that was usually made up of black goat's hair. Anyone ever pet a goat before? Right? Yeah. Not something you do and then you're like, I'd love to cuddle up next to that. Like, no, you can imagine how uncomfortable sackcloth would be to wear. And the ashes here, they, they actually signify desolation and ruin. And so Mordecai's choice to clothe himself uh, with sackcloth and ashes and go throughout the city weeping and wailing bitterly, it, 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 he, he, it's a sign of mourning over, over this anti-Semitic edict that's been sent out. He, he's exhibiting this intense grief and despair over the impending destruction of his people. And it's here in Mordecai's response that we see this vitally important leadership principle played out. It's here in Mordecai's response that we see this, this principle that I have experienced from so many of you guys over the last seven weekends. And that is the fact that leaders care deeply. Leaders care deeply. While Haman and King Xerxes, they remove themselves completely from feeling the, the impact of their decision, Mordecai, he fully embraces it. Like you have to remember, Mordecai, he's in some type of position of influence. We don't actually know what it is. The, the, the book does not name his position, but because of the fact that he's one who sits at the king's gate, we know he's, he has some position of influence. He's a leader. And in the context of that society, his decision to cover himself with, in sackcloth and ashes and go throughout the city, even to the king's gate, weeping and wailing bitterly, it would have been a sign of protest against the king's decision. Like, think about it. It would have been like having one of our government officials picketing at the White House. It would have been that controversial. This, this type of activism, especially by one of the king's own officials, it could have gotten someone in a significant amount of trouble with the king. Am I back? Oh, I am. All right. But Mordecai, he chooses to do this. Like, not because it's a smart career move. Not because it's going to help him, like, climb the ladder. It, in fact, the opposite. It could cost him greatly. Mordecai chooses to do this simply because he's a leader who cares deeply. And he's completely distraught, utterly heartbroken over what's taking place. I think it's easy to believe the common misperception that empathy in leadership is a sign of weakness. Right? We, we, we have this, this, this understanding that if we want people to respect our leadership, then we need to be confident. We need to give the appearance that we have it all together. We know what we're doing. We even kind of need to stay a little bit removed from those we lead so that we're able to make the tough decisions. But to be honest, that's a completely outdated way of leadership. Simon Sinek, he's an author, a speaker, a leadership coach in the business world these days. He says this about leadership. Leadership is not about being in charge. It's about taking care of people in our charge. Mordecai, he understood this truth completely. 
Haman and King Xerxes, they did not. They only cared about themselves. They were only looking out for their own best interests. But Mordecai, he was a leader who cared deeply about others, not just in word, but in deed. Right? Because we know it's one thing to say that you care about those you lead. It's another thing to actually actively show it. I've got a friend who's a teacher. And her and I will have conversations all the time about how her principal says that she cares for the teachers. Her, her principal says that the, the, the morale of the staff is of utmost importance to her. And yet, time and time again, the principal will make decisions regarding um, class schedules or policies or parent interactions or student discipline. And decisions will be made without even taking into consideration the teachers and how it might affect them. And so as a result, this distrust has been built between admin and staff because to say that you care, but not actually show that you care, it's just, it's completely disingenuous. Mordecai, he was a leader who cared deeply. He realized that, that caring deeply is not just an inward feeling, but it's an outward action. And he expressed that care even to the point of sacrificing his own influence, his own, uh, his own status, his own position for the sake of others. You see, if we are leaders, if we are in positions of influence, and just so you know, every single person has some type of position of influence, right? It might be small, it might be great, but it, it, we have a position of influence. No one gets off the hook here, right? Your position may not come with an official title like boss or manager or parent, but you don't need a title to be a leader. We all have some form of influence. Maybe it's at work with our coworkers, maybe it's at school, maybe it's with our family, maybe it's our neighbors, maybe it's the baristas at the coffee shop we go to every single day. Wherever it may be for you, if we're gonna be leaders, if we're gonna be in positions of influence, yet we don't actually care for those that we lead, like genuinely care for, for them, deeply care for them in, in an active way, we've already failed as leaders. Like, that has to be our starting point. I once heard someone say that an org chart is like a care chart. And that stuck with me. Because I think oftentimes we think of an org chart as a visual representation of who has authority over who. But when you look at an org chart like a care chart, then it's just a visual representation of who has the responsibility for caring for who. And so the question we have to ask ourselves then is, okay, how do I become a leader who cares deeply? If this is such a vital, such an, uh, an essential leadership principle, how is this something that I can build up in my life? Well, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but here are four ways that I think we could start developing this leadership trait in our life. I believe that leaders who care deeply, they're first and foremost, they are sincere. They're sincere. You know an easy way to show someone that you're sincere? Okay, get this. Here's an easy way to show, show someone you are sincere. When you are walking past them, ask them how they're doing, and then pause long enough to care about the answer. Right? It's simple. But think about it. How many times do we go throughout our day 
and we quickly walk past someone at work, at, at the grocery store, at school, and we say, hey, how you doing? And then we keep walking and only give them enough time to respond by saying good, right? Like, they could definitely not be doing good, and we would not know that because we don't pause. Or there have even been times, this is embarrassing, I've done this, but I don't think I'm the only one, so that's why I can say it. There have been times when I've been walking past someone, and I say, hey, how you're doing? And they're like, uh, I'm okay, or I'm not great. And I'm like, awesome, all right, I'll see you later. And I just like, keep going. Like, who does that? I do, apparently. I mean, think, think of the impact that it could have. If the next time we ask someone, hey, how you're doing, and they say good, we say, really? All right, tell me more. Why are you doing good? Or the next time we ask someone, hey, how you're doing, and, and they say, I'm okay, we say, why just okay? Like, something as simple as walking slower and pausing long enough and actually caring about the answers to the questions that we ask people, it can help us become a leader who cares more deeply. Here's the second thing we could do. Leaders who care deeply practice empathy. Empathy, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a characteristic, right? It's, it's, a, it's a personality trait. Some people are really good at being empathetic. If you've ever taken the, the uh, strengths assessment called Strengths Finder, some people test high for empathy. I don't. It's, I don't even know where it is. It's never been anywhere near my top 10. But that doesn't mean we can't be leaders who are empathetic. Yeah, it's a personality trait that some may have you know, a, a higher tendency towards than others, but it's also a quality of leadership that's just developed over time through practicing it. Here's an example of what empathy isn't. Okay, imagine for a second. You're driving on the freeway headed to work in the morning. And a car is, is pulling up in the right-hand lane. And you notice out of the corner of your eye that they start to accelerate. They're trying to get in front of you and merge into your lane. And so what do you do? You start to accelerate just enough to close the gap so that they can't cut you off. Yes, victory, you won. Okay, just me? Okay, I'm the only one who does that. Here's an example of practicing empathy. You're driving on the freeway, headed to work in the morning. When out of the corner of your eye, you see a car coming up on your right-hand side. They're accelerating, and you know they're about to merge into your lane right in front of you. Now, you've never met this person before. You don't know their story. Perhaps they're a single parent, and they've been out of work for six months, and they're heading to a job interview. For a job, they just have to land. There's so much that's riding on it. I mean, they are frantic about being late. And so they speed up, and they're cutting you off, and you let it happen. You choose to arrive to work one car length later. <laughs> because in that moment, you wanted to practice empathy. Because you don't know their story. You don't know what's going on in their life. Perhaps they're a single parent. Or perhaps they're just a jerk who likes to cut people off in the morning. Maybe, I don't know. Either way, you're becoming a leader who cares more deeply because you're practicing empathy. Here's the third thing. Leaders who care deeply, they're honest. 
Mordecai actually shows us this in chapter four. It's in the midst of his mourning and grief when he realizes, hey, the only person who could save our Jewish race is Esther, the young, naive Jewish girl who's now sitting in the king's palace. And so he says, hey, Esther, you gotta go before the king. You've gotta beg for mercy. You've gotta tell him what's been done. You've gotta convince him to reverse his decision to save the Jewish people. And Esther's first response is, no, heck no. Like, there's no way. Are you kidding me? Look at verse 11. She tells Mordecai, Mordecai, it's a capital offense to go before the king unsummoned. It's gonna cost me my life. Especially when the reason I'm going before the king is to tell him he's doing his job poorly, right? Hey, you made a bad decision. You should change that. Remember this guy, he's all about keeping up his appearance. He does not like to be defied openly, especially by his queen. Remember what happened to the last one? Like Esther's like, no way. On top of it, she adds, hey, Mordecai, it's been 30 days since I was last requested to go to the king. 30 days. That sentence alone tells us that this king, he's not as excited about Esther as he was in the early days of their marriage. Esther's like, there's no way. It's too risky. Most people, they would just leave it there. Okay, you know what, Esther, you're right. We gave it our best shot. Not Mordecai. No, this guy, he is honest. He's completely straightforward, and he's gonna speak some of the most riveting, most challenging words that a human being has ever spoken to another human being. Look at verse 13. Here's Mordecai's response to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's household, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Esther, I know you're worried. I know this is risky. But you know what? I trust God, and God is going to deliver his people one way or another. And so you can either be a part of that deliverance, or you can choose not to. But Esther, if you stay silent, if you don't step up, that choice will cost you greatly. Man, Mordecai, he is not sugarcoating things here. He is being completely straightforward and honest, addressing things head on, even when they're uncomfortable, even when they may be awkward. Why? Because he's a leader who cares deeply. Our care for people, it actually draws us to be more honest with them, right? Think about it. It's why when you're out to eat and you see the stranger at the table next to you has spinach in their teeth, you don't say anything. But when it's your best friend, you say like, hey, you got something right there. Like, you need to work. You need to deal with that. Because our care for people should produce honesty, Leaders who care deeply, they speak truth even when it's difficult. They don't avoid conflict. They they embrace difficult conversations. They they, they don't just identify things that aren't as they should be and then kind of ignore them and be like, well, maybe it'll work out. One thing I know to be true in my own life is that the times I've learned the most as a leader, the times when I've seen the most growth in myself, in in others, in, in those that I lead, are the times when I've chosen to be honest, to have difficult conversations. And Mordecai, he shows us this example. 
Here's the important thing, though. You have to remember, being honest with someone is not the same thing as being brutally honest with someone, okay? Like, that's an important differentiation, right? We've all known people who are brutally honest. Kids are notorious for being brutally honest. Like, take this kid for example. He writes, Dear Mrs. McMahon, you're a good teacher, but not my most favorite. Hopefully she's not his English teacher, because then she's not a good teacher or his most favorite. <laughs> Here's another kid. Dear Brody, Miss P made me write you this note. All I want to say sorry for is not being sorry, because I try to feel sorry, but I don't. <laughs> Liam. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Kids are so funny. Being brutally honest is cute, coming from a child. Being brutally honest is not cute and funny coming from an adult. Yeah, like, we think it's okay to treat people that way, right? I mean, it's like when someone says, you know, like, well, no offense, but, like, they're only about to offend you. Or, or when someone says, I'm not being mean, I'm just being honest. No, you're absolutely being mean. Like, there's a way to be honest and not be mean. Just like with Mordecai, our honesty that we have with people has to come from a heart of caring deeply for them. Because if it doesn't, then we're just being mean. But when we establish that trust, when, when we care deeply for someone first and it's out of that heart that we can be honest and direct with them, it'll be received. I mean, why do you think Mordecai was able to speak so openly and honest with Esther? It's because he had already established trust with her. She knew that he cared deeply for her. Leaders who care deeply, they're sincere, they practice empathy, they're honest. Here's this last example. Mordecai shows us, leaders who care deeply also see the big picture. In chapter four, Mordecai ends this challenging address that he gives to Esther with this sentence. Look at verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love that. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I mean, think about it. Esther's like a daughter to Mordecai. Right? He's raised her since she was a little girl. It would have been so easy for him to say, all right, you know what, Esther, you're the queen, you're in the palace, no one even knows you're Jewish, like, let's just lay low, fly under the radar, we're going to get through this. But because Mordecai cared deeply, not just for himself, not just for Esther, but for the entire Jewish race, it allowed him to see the big picture. He said, Esther, there's more going on here than what meets the eye. You haven't been made queen. You haven't come to this point in your life just so you can like accumulate an exquisite wardrobe and, and precious jewelry and expensive fragrances. No, Esther, you, you haven't been made queen just so, just so you can be someone's trophy wife. You, you haven't come to this point in your life, to this position for any of the reasons that the king thinks you have. He says, Esther, you've been brought to this point in your life to lead. 
Like, like you've been brought to this position, to this point in your life um, so, so that you can risk everything, so that you can give it all, so that you can work for justice, so that you can save people from suffering, so that you can oppose this very evil and powerful man. Esther, you've been brought to this position so that you can partner with God in redeeming his world. And now is the time to step up. Man, I love this perspective that Mordecai gives. It's a perspective that isn't just applicable to Esther then, but I believe it's applicable to us now. Hey, Cornerstone, think about the positions of leadership that you have. And as Billy taught us last week, Leadership is, is merely influence. What are the areas of influence that you have? Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in your community, in your school, with your roommates. Wherever that influence may be, perhaps, perhaps God has chosen to place you in this particular time of human history at this particular area of the world, in those specific spheres of influence for such a time as this. Like, what are we doing with that? How are, how are we using the influence that we have right now? I mean, think about it. The spiritual need in the East Bay area currently, like, it has never been higher the number of people who need to know Jesus has never been larger. The opportunities that God has given us as a church family, they've never been greater. Think about it, like God is opening doors for Cornerstone like never before, like we've never seen in our 25-year history. I believe, I deeply believe that God has placed Cornerstone Fellowship in this area of the country, in the East Bay of California for such a time as this. I mean, think about it. It's why we're even doing this series. Why else would we spend 11 whole weekends focusing solely on leadership? Like, that's a long time. It's because we want to equip one another with the tools necessary to be able to, to lead and influence others well to lead effectively right where God has placed us, right now. Because we fully believe that God desires to use each and every single one of us individually in unique ways, but also collectively as a church family to repair the fabric of the East Bay. Like, that's our mission. This is our mission field. And now's the time that we have to move forward. But you see... You may not know this. Christians are the minority in the East Bay. <laughs> like the cards are stacked against us. This is an impossible mission to achieve. God's asking us to do the impossible. We'll never be able to achieve it. Unless it starts with the heart. Right? Unless we start at the place where we are going to commit to being leaders who care deeply for those that we're leading, for those that we're influencing. That has to be our starting place. I'll end with this. Mordecai 
He cared deeply for the whole Jewish people, and, and that allowed him to, to see this big picture that was at play. But that didn't happen at the expense of him caring for Esther. You see, I actually believe that Mordecai's goal, it wasn't to just like risk Esther's life in order to save everyone else's. No, I believe that his goal was to try and coach Esther into becoming a leader herself. Because the truth is, leaders produce other leaders. The best leader in the room is not the person with the most followers. The best leader in the room is the one who intentionally develops other leaders. And I believe that's what Mordecai's doing here. He's taking this young, naive Jewish queen and saying, all right, here we go. Here's what needs to happen. Let's do this. And next weekend, we're going to get to come back, and we're going to get to see if Esther steps up to that leadership challenge. Read ahead if you want. It's really good. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, that we can take a book like Esther that's been written thousands and thousands of years ago, and it has so many good truths that apply to us today right here where we're at in the East Bay of California in 2018. God, that, that just blows my mind that you work in that way. God, I pray that you would speak to every person listening to this message today, Lord, and you would show us the ways that we need to grow our capacity to care for those we lead. Lord, show us the ways that we can, we can, we can practice being sincere and empathetic and, and develop that heart of deep care. Because God, it's only from that heart that we're actually gonna be able to see any change take place. We're not gonna see the, the fabric of the East Bay repaired because we're the loudest or we're the strongest, God, but because we're the, we're the group of people who care the deepest. Not just in what we say, God, but in every single action that we take. But God, we can't do that on our own. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom to know how to live that out. So God, we ask that you would develop that heart in each and every single one of us and that as a result, we would be a people who lead well and that we would see life change happen in our particular areas of influence because of it. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in your son's awesome and mighty name. Amen.